Qatar T10, Afghanistan pummeled by the West Indies, the end of Tim Murta and Green, Challenge League South Asian Games and how you can own a part of the European Cricket League. All that and more on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Thank you for joining us again for the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick, and with me are the two other regulars of the EC Pod. First in Brisbane, Tim Cutler. Tim, how do you do? I'm very well, Bez. It's a little bit warmer up here than it was in Sydney last week. I'm kind of, I don't know, having somewhat of uh, withdrawals, the three of us not being able to see each other and bounce off each other's move and I don't know that, that might mean there's no Simpsons quotes but that's probably good for most people how are you sir what's what's happening with the bushfires uh well I think Nick you might have a, a better answer for that than I do there is a little bit of smoke around in Sydney but I've heard it's quite bad up uh your way there Nicholas on the central coast can you elaborate yeah it's been um covering most of the coast and you can just smell the smoke everywhere I had to shelter indoors quite a lot and I think the warning's basically saying not to do any exercise. I'm hoping it clears up by the weekend because in other news I managed to rejoin the uh, the old cricket club, Narara Wyoming Lions. Oh well this is the first I've heard about it. Does this mean you'll also rock up at the Grange on Saturday? Well potentially. Good to hear. Uh, depending on uh, yeah how we go. Hopefully I get it, get on the park. In a ships of the night situation it's my last weekend playing for the Lions for the foreseeable future. Uh, with the big bash around the corner and that taking up just about my entire life, even my social and cricketing lives, which is unfortunate. Hopefully that doesn't mean that the podcast has to take a, uh, a brief break over Christmas, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Let's jump straight in to our first topic of today, and it relates to the Challenge League in Oman, of course, Group B of that Challenge League, and just a run-through of the matches so far to go down there in Al Amarat. We saw Uganda keep Jersey at bay with a 25-run win, while Italy edged Kenya. A Kinchit Shah masterclass got Hong Kong over the line against Bermuda, and in match day three action, Jersey went down to Hong Kong with, again, Kinchit Shah in the runs. And in the East Africa derby, we saw Uganda finally overcome Kenya. So, plenty of action from Al Amarat, and we'll keep you up to date with that when we can on Emerging Cricket and across our platforms. Uh, Something else going on at the moment is the South Asian Games, uh, which do or which have started uh, in Nepal, of course. Uh, A few matches that have gone on there. On the men's side, we saw Nepal go down in the last over to the Sri Lankan under-23 side uh, before beating Bhutan by a margin. Bhutan also fell heavily to the Sri Lankans, as did the Maldives. The Maldives also lost to Bangladesh, who have played just the one match as we go live here tonight. Meanwhile, on the women's side, it's a four-team competition. Bangladesh have gone three from three, Uh, while the Maldives finished 0 from 3. Nepal and Sri Lanka both go into their match with a 1-1 record, so that game will decide who the other finalist is uh, on the women's side of the draw. Though, one thing I did want to talk to you guys on the show about, and of course we will wrap both of those events properly once they do conclude, but in the South Asian Games, we've had a bit of a Statsgate moment with 
Nepal's Anjali Chand taking six for none in their clash against the Maldives. Nepal winning that match, uh, chasing down a target of just 16, I think it was. They were none for 17 at the end of their chase. Boys, we haven't seen as much of an outcry from some of the so-called stats gatekeepers that might have kicked up a storm after that Mali incident that we saw earlier in the year. The optimist in me probably thinks that that's more to do with people accepting these matches as fully-fledged international matches that do count in the record books, but it could be otherwise. Tim, what did you make of this? And I'm assuming that your stance on Statsgate and and stats in the game hasn't really changed much? Absolutely not. The fact that somebody took six for none and we're talking about it, it was in a multi-sport games in a women's T20 international and with the Maldives making their debut it's just great news for cricket the bowler in me says geez if I'm going to take six wickets in four overs I'd want to be taking a hat trick but uh, remember my brother's team one guy he played with took six wickets in six, in an over all bold wow just a useless little tidbit there but it always amazed me but uh, well we now have the best figures in women's T20 internationals and well let's see if they can be beaten yeah, it reminds me a bit of my days as a junior. I think we got bowled out for 12 once. Um, I, I was never on the giving end of these uh, amazing statistical anomalies. But yeah, I, I, I'm questioning whether it's because people have started to accept statistics or whether it's just because not so many people are paying attention to the uh, South Asian games. But hopefully it's the former and not the latter. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if there's any more of this, given that the news might resurface. But yeah, if anyone wants to come at me with uh, the these numbers should never be counted, then I will only tag you in the article that I did earlier in the year about these records counting. It's not to do with being the best per se. It's about having these names in the record books. Uh, to use the football analogy, Archie Thompson scored 13 international goals in a game against American Samoa, and no one considers him the greatest footballer of all time, nor should they, despite his him having a rather illustrious career in Australian football, not so much on the international scene. Uh, As we do move on to some other chat, uh, and the Qatar T10 brought a few headlines this week with uh, a number of things. Of course, they've had their draft. Now, we had penciled in Shahid Afridi as an event ambassador back in July, and Tim, you penned this story on Emerging Cricket. There was also talk of Yuvraj Singh, but neither have shown their head here for Qatar, and neither of them picked in any of the teams. But we have seen a smattering, uh, actually more of a smattering, a, a quite a generous associate player selection. Uh, there were 20 players all up from five countries I can see here. Tim, Shahid Afridi might have brought the headlines, but hopefully these associate players who have been picked in this Qatari league will do a valiant job for their respective franchises. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Similar situation to, in some ways, the the Euro T20 Slam and and the Canada Premier League with a lot of players being in this draft. Unlike the T20 Slam, this had an associate, well, three associate picks per squad, of which there are six franchises in this T10 League. Some strange selections in there with some Indians and English players being picked as associates but good to see some names that don't pop up a lot scott edwards was one that that really did um, stick out to me he's the only dutch player getting a getting a game sompal kami ticked off at yet another franchise league i'm not sure how any nepalese players are going to be playing this though it starts this weekend on saturday and the south asian games as far as i'm aware is still going so it's not the longest of tournaments it only runs for eight days of round action so i'm not quite sure how they're going to fit that in yeah no freedy he was named as the tournament ambassador but then i noticed the photo 
photo that he'd posted announcing that that had then been copied and shared by the tournament page, he has actually deleted. So I don't know whether that means his relationship has ended. But yeah, a lot of UAE players and not many um, very well-known ones. I guess everything they've gone through lately and had a lot of players move out of the game is probably much to blame for that. But then a couple of development players from Oman and Canada as well. Nicholas, what do you, what do you make of these uh, the Canada players that are in the in the T10? Yeah, it's a bit of a head scratcher, as you would uh, you would say. You know, you've got a guy like Harmandeep Singh who played three matches in the Caribbean this year, has never played for Canada or really anything of note before then, and he didn't even do particularly well and, and he got picked up and um you know quite a lot of other good canadians were roundly ignored which yeah it's, it's a bit strange and so i might add is the event ambassador just uh, disappearing into the dead of night seemingly I, i'm a bit puzzled by some of these other other picks you know a guy like kanar lewis from the west indies and when i googled to to find him the the suggestion was a, a contestant from a season of Survivor in America a few years ago, and, that, and his record is certainly not glittering. So it's a bit strange to see. Yeah, and you know, you'd, you'd look around at the the world of associate cricket and even some of the rumours of the full member players floating around, and it seems like there's a lot of talent that, that missed out and uh, a lot of um, perhaps second-string players that are making the cut, which, which does perhaps remove some of the luster from the tournament and you know having a player like Salman Butt in the one of the teams that doesn't really look good after his history either and I guess my <laughs> you look looking we've talked a bit about team names in the past uh, do you guys what is a heat stormer that's obviously someone who storms uh, while being no I've got no idea that's an interesting one I guess it is very hot in Qatar. I've been there. It was 48 degrees. Wow. On one of the two days I was there. So, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> what are the other names? Uh, we've got the Flying Oryx. Which is fine. The Oryx being the, you know, it's also the on uh, Qatari Airways as well. Yeah. Uh, falcon Hunters, which I actually quite liked because that's a, a traditional sport um, around the Gulf. Are they hunting with falcons or are they they hunting falcons? Oh, yes. No, they, they train the falcons to hunt. Um, I'm not sure what they hunt, actually. I, I assume small animals of some kind. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the Desert Riders, which, I mean, okay, fine. There's a lot of desert around, but... The logo has cactus plants in it, which are not a thing in Qatar. <laughs> and, of course, we have the Pearl Gladiators, uh, just the most generic name that you can probably come up with, and the Swift Gallopers. I, I don't know what a, a Swift is. Um, yeah, uh, Suzuki. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they should have got Suzuki to sponsor them. Yeah, New South Wales Swifts Netball. Yeah, well, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, you sort of wonder, you know, you've got the T10 League that just finished in the UAE. At least they went for subcontinent cities, so some regional alliance somehow. Not that I can imagine those cities were, you know, lined up on the streets at TV shops watching the, the tournament, but at least there's something. And then what do we have the, not the Cricket All-Stars, it was the uh, Legends, the retired Legends T20. Oh, that was horoscope symbols, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. All... Uh, constellations so yeah i don't know you think if you're running an event in a country for the first time you wouldn't you use that as a as an opportunity to highlight the places in that country considering we're about to watch a a football world cup there in all different parts of of qatar you think they might use those cities as potentially those those major ones and base it around there to bring it a bit a local flavor to it it's a because it's all run by the the qatar cricket association it's not like it's a fly-in fly-out event either so probably missed a trick there be interesting though i saw D Sport have been um, flogging it on their social channels. Here's hoping that there'll be a way to watch it because uh, there's a couple of interesting players there. Just be, I don't, I don't know, we'll see how the teams are made up and uh, how 
some of the Qataris go as well. Well, we are looking forward to the competition starting, which does begin on Saturday. And yeah, hopefully a chance to be able to witness this from a different part of the world, whether or not uh, there'll be a chance of that. I doubt. Uh, for a full list of the associate players selected in that tournament, Tim's written an article on it on the Emerging Cricket website, so do manage to check it out. And you can also have a look at some of these elite team names that we just discussed. Uh, yeah, the likes of Heat Stormers and Falcon Hunters uh, will be interesting to see uh, in full flow and hopefully playing some high-level franchise cricket. Let's move on to a different T10 tournament and one that, well, caught a little a few people off guard this week with some news from their owner and founder, Daniel Weston. He's opening up the European Cricket League to potential investors in an IPO. Uh, he will acquire 50,000 shares of the European Cricket League with 10,000 shares up for grabs for the public. Now, you can purchase 10 shares for 500 euros uh, it's a pretty bold move here from, from Weston doubling down on his ECL project, which did see uh, the tournament played in Spain and beamed to televisions in over 120 countries through, I think, 43 broadcast partners. Next year's tournament will be five days longer and with double the number of teams as well. Uh, it's a pretty exciting time for the ECL and, and Weston does, as we already knew, truly believe in his own projects. But for him to uh, open it up, up to the public and to give other people an opportunity to put the bricks in the wall of a, of a foundation of what could be a booming area of uh, emerging cricket and high-level cricket in, in generations to come. It, it, it's a bold move, but it, but it could come off for, for someone like Western Tim. Well, they say about people putting their, their money where their mouth is or another cliche about skin in the game. And Daniel, who's done well in his previous life as a global macro hedge fund manager, and um, I had to look that up. It's basically people who use macro elements um, uh, economic impacts and uh, otherwise about using it as a, a modifier for their investment decisions which so you got to, someone who had to have his finger on the pulse as to what was happening in the world and looking at interest rates and currency and, and other fluctuations so you'd like to think the guy knows what's going on and, and how to read a market and yeah he's putting his well he's, he's he, I don't know if he's cashing his chips hopefully he's got a, a lot of them to uh, to put into the middle of the table there and seeing who else is game to come along with him I know that there was an initial investor presentation that went out before the ECL and this is almost like a not so much an IPO or a shareholding but uh, like th for someone to come in and buy private shares like this is an exciting well it, it, I look at the likes of an, a T20 tournament like the Blitz and it gave people the chance to buy a team and be part of it this way but if you don't have enough to buy an entire team here's your chance to get in there and be involved at the ground level of potentially a revolution in, in European cricket and not if not European sports so for those that have some spare dollars that are, are, have the passion I'm, I'm not sure about it from a numbers point of view but um, it's a great opportunity for people to get involved it's pretty interesting I think is this the first time that a franchise league is, is selling public shares I, I can't think of any other leagues around the world doing this no I, I can't either I think every other league has been either completely owned by an entity um, and sells licenses i.e. franchises or, or it's completely owned by by the cricket administration itself and uh, doesn't sell any shares whatsoever so no I think I think you're right there well not, not of any size anyway yeah, and, and, and certainly Dan Weston uh, talks a lot about, uh, you know, uh, new markets and um, I guess doing things a bit differently and, and finding a new way of, of, uh, of uh, promoting cricket and growing the game. And I, he continues to innovate, I guess. Um, it'll be interesting to see if any other leagues do pick this up because, you know, I think 
not to give too much credit to the ECL, but I think um, the the boom in you know T10 as opposed to T20, um, I think the ECL showed just how good a tournament can be with T10 and and you know having a quick tournament like that, and I guess um, as a bit of a leveler between teams rather than um, you know wasting time on on one sided games. So uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, good luck to Weston. As you said, he says he's the kind of guy that you would think knows what he's doing with money. Um, <laughs> I, I I certainly. It's all above my head what what his actual uh, profession is. The macro hedge fund I mean, it might as well be uh... economic rocket science <laughs> is what I believe he's doing, Nicholas. If that makes it any easier for you, uh, yeah. The, the tournament running from uh, the thirty first of May to the seventh of June next year. So make sure to check it out, and I'm sure it'll be on a television in front of you, no matter wherever you are in the emerging cricket world, as uh, we do like to say. Uh, a man who found his feet and found fame in the ECL, uh, Romania's Pavel Florin. The roadshow of Pavel continues. He's played uh, now in Perth, a couple of games in Perth for the Subiaco Marist Cricket Club. Uh, made the news in Perth as well, like he did in Melbourne. A run out by him was caught on camera where he's actually need the ball into the stump of his own bowling and running out the batsman backing up at the non-strikers end. I'm not sure how intentional it was, but only he will know. And just looking at his Twitter before, he says, are you sure it was an accident? Uh, so maybe he did mean it. We don't know. But once again, it's a showcase of the individuals that the European Cricket League has brought into the light of the cricketing world and the cricketing public and the cricketing media, Tim. Uh, and, and guys like Pavel are only going to be exposed more to cricket and to the people of, of the cricketing community through European Cricket League and, and other leagues around the world of this nature. Before I get onto that, I don't know what it is you've got in for for Pavel Bez. First, you were talking about him sledging and giving a guy a send off when he was on camera, and, <laughs> and this time you've got him you've got him doing a run out off his knee. Now I watched that replay a couple of times, and the ball clearly comes off his hand. It's mullered back to him. I think it might have been the second or third ball of the match. Hang on, does it? Let me go back. And he's fallen backwards like a goalkeeper. And I'm, if I mention goalkeeping and Pavel Flora, I'm sure everybody has also seen the video of him keeping after the game at Surrey Hills and keeping out a short-range penalty like a, well... It, it, oh, does it come off his hand? Yes, Daniel. So you can't go back and change it now. <laughs> so he's fallen backwards perfectly to try and give himself as much time as possible goalie style and it's ricocheted off his finger because he hasn't actually had time to move into the direction of the ball just to make himself big and then it ricochets off and runs the guy out at the at the, uh, the bowler's end there it is perfect that's good cricketing hang on i'm looking at it one more time uh on full screen oh i don't know about that i'm gonna have to freeze frame that <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that was for the umpire to adjudicate and not me so uh I would like a better angle of that. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, um, yes. Um, look, he is a bit of an everywhere man. I guess we notice it a lot more because we're looking out for it. And it's great that he's getting this much publicity. He's basically been on the network news in every Aussie city that he's been in, which is great because as much as we'd like them to, not every cricket fan's going to be following the ECL or listening to this podcast. So the, the more his name is mentioned in the mainstream media the more people wonder about remaining cricket and then we'll go to the, the ECL so I guess it's now down to Daniel Weston to uh, be following through with the marketing as necessary and you know from the looks of it and the two and a half three 
million euro that are going to be invested in the event for the next few years, then hopefully you can capitalise on all of that publicity. Well, yeah, you, you talk a lot about uh, building heroes. Um, and I don't think I've seen a, a better hero being built than uh, than Pavel Florin. He's, I'm interested to... I wonder if I might try and have a look and see if we can find what, what people back home in Romania think of all this uh, cricketing circus that he's embarked on. Yeah, well, the last time we saw him, he was walking down the street being uh, yes. cheered in some kind of public parade, wasn't he? That's one of his uh, publicity photos. Well, hopefully they, uh, the cricket bug uh, gets transmitted through him back to Romania. Seems he's a handy football player too, so... He's a handy everything. He played gridiron for Romania as well. He's Yeah, he played American football, yeah. What was that quote from Kerry Packer when they interviewed him about World Series cricket and they was like, would you like to have represented Australia in a sport? And he's like, oh, I would have represented Australia in anything. Marbles even, if I had the chance. <laughs> Pavel Florin living the dream one sport at a time, it looks like. Well, he's uh, he's got his cricket info profile, so as we all know, that's the that's the benchmark. Oh, that's the dream. One out of three in this group have a cricket info profile. I don't like bringing it up, but... <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> no comment. One day. I don't know how, but one day. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. Oh, no, you, you might burgle your way into a, a Nepalese team somewhere. <laughs> Everest Premier League overseas player slash media assistant slash junior coach <laughs> slash everywhere man can roll out some filthy leg breaks and bat and chew up all the balls and score 10 not out of 18, 18 balls and have everyone on Nepal Twitter complain about me. Are you Nicholas Curtin? <laughs> I might as well be. Uh but 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 to move on to to a different topic of conversation and of course with with Anshuman Rath uh, leaving to pursue opportunities in India another player who we have seen from Hong Kong play international cricket in a full member capacity is Mark Chapman now Mark Chapman's in the runs uh, playing some one day cricket in New Zealand of course for Auckland making 70 against Canterbury at Christchurch uh, not too long ago Tim I'm sure you keep up with with his progress that 70 was also off just 44 balls batting at number five they made 401 in the innings uh, Auckland in this particular match but for Chapman as well as guys like Anshaman Ratha and other players from Hong Kong who have pursued careers elsewhere. It does seem like there is a strong platform to uh, to then develop their game and, and to push on into higher honours because we've seen it with Chapman and I'm sure we're going to see it with Anshaman Ratha as well. Yeah, well, that's the thing with Chappie and for a guy that was picked in his national team at the age of 15, I think he might have just turned 16 as when Charlie Burke picked him in 2011 in World Korea League Division 3. That's the hard thing in Hong Kong is a lot of the time it's harder to be dropped um, once you're in the team because there's not a lot of talent coming through. And we've seen Chappie get picked for New Zealand, uh, do okay in T20Is, not go too well, well, to his standards anyway in ODIs and have to go back and, and rebuild and score mountains of runs and... And I think that's only going to be better for him and probably the making of him that if and when, well, hopefully it's more of a when rather than if he comes back into the New Zealand team, hopefully he'll be a three-format player. I think we all, well, everyone who's watched him knows he's got the the skill set to do that, um, but he'll be just a better player. And likewise with with Anchi and um, heard some sad, not sad news, some disappointing news from him in that he won't be entering the IPL draft uh, this year because he hasn't qualified as a, as a local player in the eyes of the tournament so uh, people will ask well why did he miss out on the T20 World Cup etc that w- that is so he will be able to play in the Ranji Trophy next season so that is well any fans of, of associate cricket and knowing how talented he is that that's sad that we're not going to see him but uh, all the best to him but we're actually going to have 
Chappie on the pod in the next week or so uh, to talk about his path, but more about a new product he has released as he was doing an engineering degree at the same time as playing cricket. For those more may remember when he scored 100 on debut against the UAE at the back end of 2015 in the World Cricket League Championship. He had come late because he just had his university exams and that was why he came late. He got off the plane, batted, scored 100 on ODI debut and, you know, this game's easy. (laughs) Um, So he... He has actually designed a new type of protective piece of equipment, which is the arm guard within the sweatband. So if you see, I think David Warner, when he scored, I'm, I'm not sure, it was a few runs last week. I think it was uh, 330, something, maybe 335. But I saw um, one news website posting how it should have been one short because he missed with his, his foot. Oh. So they should go back and take him back to 334. It's like, Don't get me started on that. I know, give me a spell. Anyway, I reckon Davey was wearing one of those. But uh, so we'll get him on to talk about life during and post uh, Hong Kong cricket and also his little project on the side as well well so uh, that'll be good yeah i think all the the statsgate people were preoccupied with uh, david warner and his so-called disrespectful move of um <laughs> going past don bradman which i mean if you know anything about don bradman i don't think it's disrespectful in the slightest just thinking about uh Anchi and uh mark chapman and their career turns and and you know, Mark Chapman, you mentioned his ODI debut and, and his century. He actually started playing a few years before that. So he'd already uh, had quite a lot of experience at, at international level. And, you know, by now he's he's been an international player for almost 10 years and he's already he's still quite young. So this is one of the things I'm just thinking about the associate players coming through to full member nations is the value that they bring is a huge amount of experience because they do start so young. So I think we're seeing it now as he's uh, rebuilding his... Um, his, his domestic career and piling up mountains of runs. It's just a bit of a shame he's not an opener because um, New Zealand's struggling to, to find a yeah, long-term partner for, for Latham at the top there. So maybe uh, Anshu should have tried his hand in New Zealand. Well, I was... Tim, feel free to correct me here, but I thought Chappie for Hong Kong did bat rather high. I thought he might have been able to open, but I could be wrong. Um, I think he batted probably every position, but in the one day... Uh, one day as in the T20Is, I think he came in four, um, and that was the last time he played for Hong Kong was in the, the 2016 World Cup. Um, yeah, so he batted uh, around the former. I'm not sure if he ever opened, but he just seems one of those players that could bat anywhere, like a bit like David Warner has been throughout his career. I'm talking a little bit too much full member stuff here, but that, that kind of talent, he's got really quick hands. I, I, I know he has those sort of low wrists when he plays the ball, and whether that means they'd need to change his technique a little bit for the faster bowling, but if you're quick enough, I guess it doesn't matter how low your hands are when the ball's delivered, it's, it's where you are when the ball's hit your bat yeah and where you hit it on your bat when they they bowl pakistani tripe like they did in that test match uh look yeah the pakistan series wasn't exactly the most uh enthralling cricket i've seen on australian shores but that's for another podcast uh on a different day uh it was an unfortunate showing by afghanistan uh in their only test match against the west indies in india of course uh similar to that of new zealand and england playing their test matches there this match doesn't count towards the world test championship but it was a disappointing performance nonetheless by afghanistan who did lose by nine wickets they were bowled out for 187 in their first innings uh a few scores of note in the 30s but apart from that nothing to write home about as rakeem cornwall took seven for 75 in the first innings in a in a 
hefty display. But then with the bat, unfortunately, couldn't dismiss Shamar Brooks uh, before he scored 111 off 214 balls. They did manage to keep Craig Brathwaite and Shy Hope quiet in the match overall. But the West Indies were bowled out in their first innings for 277. Afghanistan, in reply, bowled out for 120 with Javed Ahmadi making 61. There were only three players in that side that reached double figures and then needing just 33 runs uh, to win that match. Uh, Afghanistan did manage to take the wicket of Craig Brathwaite, but apart from that, it was uh, a pretty one-sided affair. I know that we talk about Afghanistan and Ireland's full members and being in the higher echelon of the emerging cricket nations, but you have to say, even as a new test side and playing in a neutral venue of India, you would hope that Afghanistan would put up a a more competitive uh, effort here, Nick. This was quite disappointing to look at the the score. It's not as if the West Indies are experts uh, in Indian conditions. Yeah, I mean, much as much as we like Raheem Cornwall, I think honestly the fact that he is taking ten wickets is is a bit a bit of an indictment of the Afghan batting because they should be more familiar with these conditions and they should be able to handle his bowling. I think significantly better than they did, and the the Afghan bowlers really let them get away, didn't they? Even someone like a Rashid Khan, we've we've talked about his um uh, I guess inability to translate his his short form wizardry to to the longer form, and he, he's still struggling a bit and perhaps it is the captaincy weighing him down I don't know but um, Amir Hamza was a good find for them I think this was his um, first test match certainly and he's played a couple of one days here and there over the years but um, yeah another another left arm orthodox from their spin factory um, managed to pick up five wickets against uh, again the West Indies are not the strongest test side but you know got some good scalps there I don't know. I think it's just a learning thing, isn't it? You know, they've they've got to just play more test matches to get better. So it just takes teams a while to get used to the rhythms of the game. And I guess especially with so many other formats competing for attention now. Um, yeah, it it is disappointing though. And, and I think they probably could and should do better looking at some of the names in, in the side. Like Ramat Shah was uh, was very good against Ireland and, and Ashgar Afghan has a solid technique as well. So yeah, as you say, disappointing. Yeah, do we know if this is their full strength lineup that they've picked? I know Majib, no Zahir Khan, the left arm wrist spinner. Is this the, the best team they've got? Oh, Zahir was there. Yeah, well, they were they were hampered by Muhammad Nabi retiring uh, in the quotation fingers from Red Bull cricket. I say retiring considering he's only really played a, a few Red Bull games of cricket at this level in his life. But yeah, they look to be close to full strength. I'm not sure what the idea is with Majib. Perhaps they feel that he's not quite a, a long format bowler because he's more about the the batsman taking to him or trying to take to him and, and taking wickets in that way. But yeah, looking at it, there are a couple of players that you would like to see on that side. But uh, yeah, it just looks to be that the way that Afghanistan are now, I suppose, Tim. And uh, how is it with Rakeem Cornwall coming in at uh, number eight in the first innings? And then uh, I think all the way down at number 10, he was uh, 44 and not out. There are, there are people you want to see coming in after you've taken a few wickets. And Rakeem Cornwall, I don't think, is one of them. But just looking across across the side, you know, Rakeem is a very talented cricketer. But I, I wouldn't put him in the, the kind of top echelon of, of spinners, as great as it is to see him performing and being being picked um, despite him not being the fittest bloke out there they, they still feel he's in the best 11 which is great but uh, yeah you think as you've already said in, in conditions known better to the to the Afghans and spin 
you know, like you said, the spin factory and the batter should be used to playing. You know, I, yeah, it's not really good enough uh, against someone of Rakeem's level. And don't be wrong, he's a, he's a good bowler in his test cricket. But it just makes me wonder how much effort they're putting behind red ball cricket if this is the type of performance. And yes, it's only one and it's in their third ever test match. So there's only so much that we can talk about it. But um, I just wonder whether this is a little glimpse into the future as to, to where Afghanistan's cricket is going. And that's very much towards white ball cricket, of which they, they play very well. Well, just pursuant to our um, our discussion a couple of weeks ago about the future of uh, Red Ball Cricket and, and Associates, and um, uh, did, did you guys see the Russell Degnan article about his proposed 12-team uh, test championship? Because just thinking about these two, two series with West Indies and Afghanistan and England and, and New Zealand both not counting for points to the World Test Championship, it, it is a bit funny that you, you would have that, but... Um, Degnan's proposal was uh, basically four groups of three, and then some um, refreshage playoffs to to increase jeopardy. And this is this is a point that uh, Russ makes a lot. But one of the things that makes tournaments interesting is jeopardy. And as good as it is to have a, a league format uh, that actually has some sort of coherence, you end up with these odds and ends with you know Afghanistan not being in the tournament and this random New Zealand England series that's not part of it. Uh, so so. Having building that narrative and building the the jeopardy is uh, very important. And um, the good thing about Russell's proposal is having these groups of three means you can get them World Test Championship points out of the way pretty quickly. Um, similar to the way that the uh, the ODI Cricket World Cup League Two is is being played with the tri series, and you can get them done quite quickly. Uh, so this way you can you can get through the World Test Championship for the teams that. Uh, maybe bilateral series aren't very profitable. And, you know, if you are England and Australia, you can still schedule four or five tests for each other and, and, and keep making money from that. So it's a very good proposal. And I think one that would improve the situation of, of these games where as nice as it is to see Afghanistan playing test cricket, you, you do sort of wonder, well, what's, what's the point of this game? They just play this one-off game and nothing really comes of it. It makes you think, what were we thinking about Test cricket before the uh, the World Test Championship, really, doesn't it? And just to expand on that about Russ's article, and I rarely find myself disagreeing with him, especially how good he is with numbers, and that's what he does in his day job. He's a bit like... Uh, uh, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. He uh, works with uh, with traffic and uh, tram lines and and whatnot. I think he's actually he's actually a spy. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me, honestly. But just to go further on that, that, that once the teams haven't made it through to the next round, there is the repercharge round. But also below that, and teams that haven't made the repercharge, they go into a playoff with the the higher teams that have come through the the I Cup or or whatever format it is. So if you're a a Red Ball fan, I encourage you to to check it out. It's on Crick Buzz, and I think it's Russ's first piece for for Crick Buzz. So good good on him. Yeah, it's, it's just the time that it takes with everything else that's going on. He didn't um, intertwine it with any of the one dayers or or T20s as well. But if you were able to have uh, more teams playing against each other more often in contextual cricket, I, I think we'd all agree that's what we want to see. But if we're going to get Olympics and we're going to have all these other new events that have been announced or at least mooted in the, the sense of the under-19s 
Women's World Cup and this weird six-team Champions Trophy and whatnot, how it all fits in and whether there is a place for this much test cricket or at least red ball cricket if you're going down to the I-Cup and whatnot. But no, I, I enjoyed it. It was a good long read. Well, the the main, I guess, uh, takeaway point that, that I think Russ makes here that, that is really pertinent is that um, the issue with test cricket and, and the reason, theoretically, that they're bringing in the test championship is is to obviously to give it more context, but to make it more marketable and more profitable for, for teams like say Afghanistan and, and West Indies who maybe aren't uh, able to sell their rights for, for a whole lot. So um, looking at giving Test cricket more jeopardy and, and excitement is the sort of thing that would improve, uh, you would hope, the, the financial outlook for, for playing Test matches, whereas someone like Australia, England, India can play bilateral series and because of the, the shared history and, and just the size of the market, they'll still make a profit on that. Whereas, you know, a random one-off bilateral series between a lower-ranked team is not really going to be profitable. So so the, the overall point is that having a, a test championship doesn't really help Australia, England and India so much, but it certainly helps the lower-ranked teams and, and so it should be built around that. Well, the analogy that I was going to use or the analogy that I want to use for Afghanistan in test cricket is that they're the kid that uh, wants to really get into this phase that all the other cool kids are in on, you know, Pokemon cards or whatever. But <laughs> once they finally do get into the, the inner sanctum and the inner circle of what's cool, no one wants to be cool anymore and they've all found something different. <laughs> That's basically Afghanistan and, and Ireland in test cricket now where they've strived and they've done so well to reach full membership and, and test status and they should be applauded for what they've achieved, especially for Afghanistan who have done it in such a short amount of time. But, but yeah, as... Afghanistan and Ireland should be applauded for, for reaching full membership and test status. We are reaching a point, uh, a fight between international cricket and franchise leagues for time and money. And we keep talking about it. It seems to be a, an overarching topic of international cricket. And, and as an emerging cricket podcast, it should be because a lot of the countries at, at the level that we're discussing are, are, are probably fighting with themselves trying to work out what do they want out of red ball cricket, if they want anything out of red ball cricket at all. So, it is a strange point, and, and if we really want to see a viable structure for longer format cricket, uh, a format like Russ's, uh, the one that he goes through, would be, I think, a desired result. The unfortunate thing is that the I-Cup uh, looks to be as good as dead, which is you know, is, is a real shame. And Tim, I, I was reminded by you, actually, when you posted something from the Emerging Cricket page on social media yesterday with uh, Herat Erasmus uh, batting in a floppy uh, and in whites for, oh. for Namibia in the I Cup and I, I tweeted that that should be hung up in the Louvre somewhere because that just looked absolutely class. I really do hope that at some point we see something like that again because it's just a nice little charming part of uh, emerging cricket. Uh, maybe if we do get a little bit indulgent here, it's only really for us and not really for people out there if, if it's not viable economically, but it would be great to see. Yeah, just, just going back to some of the, I guess, administrative uh, history of, you know, test cricket, and, and it's been a long process even just to get to this uh, World Test Championship, as, as flawed as it is. The, you know, one of the ideas floating around was a, a centralised fund to, to help subsidise it where in, in countries that are less profitable, and, and there have been suggestions of revenue sharing, but ultimately, like a lot of things at the ICC, where it falls down is that it, it basically, it needs the powerful boards to vote in favour of it, and the powerful boards sort of, it's not necessarily in their short 
short-term financial interest. And, and so we have that perverse incentive where the long-term health of the game is weighed against the short-term health of individual members' finances. And that goes back to the structural problems of the ICC and, and the fact that it's not actually in control of its own agenda. And, and essentially, the, it's, a, it's a members club where the, the members, the full members, kind of just tell it what to do. And, and that's basically where a lot of these, uh, <laughs> a lot of these problems originate. Well, as we do speak about countries who have strived for so long for test status and to eventually acquire it, a man who has been at the forefront of Irish cricket and their quest for test status is Tim Murta. Uh, and with some rather somber news, it must be said, because he has decided to retire from the Irish cricketing setup to continue his career at Middlesex. It is a rather forced hand for Murta, who has a contract, of course, with Middlesex and cannot continue for them and play for Ireland, given the ECB red tape. It's an ongoing situation that becomes almost more complicated the more that you think about it. And we had Angie Rath on the show discuss his own issues with Middlesex. Uh, But I I know, Nick, that you've been rather vocal about all of this and the logistical hurdles that associate cricketers face, even when they do try to pursue a career in England. It's very hard to pursue a career and and not go to somewhere like England and and play cricket for coin as a profession. Uh, But for associate players and, and everything that rules them out from playing in county cricket. This is a sad story because Tim Murta could definitely do a job for both Ireland and Middlesex, and unfortunately he's had to pick one given the situation. Yeah, I think we've probably discussed it on the podcast before, but certainly with the Irish case, there are various aspects of Irish and and UK work law, which on the face of it makes it look like this probably isn't legal under UK work law because of yeah various agreements between uh, Ireland and, and England. But yeah, I, I, I think this is sort of the ECB pushing as, as far as they can and knowing that the people who are affected by these rules aren't necessarily in a position to challenge them, which I think is yeah really disappointing that they, they go down that path. But going back to Tim Murta and, and his position in, in Irish cricket, the the pantheon, if you like, I think he's right up there with guys like Ed Joyce and, and Kevin O'Brien and, uh, of course, William Porterfield. He, he's been at the forefront, as you say, and he, just watching that spell against England earlier this year, you know, he's still got it. And, and on a green-seeming pitch, there's no one better, really, who, who can just use the conditions. And he's one of those bowlers that he knows exactly his limitations and and he knows exactly what he can do and he just executes perfectly and I I love seeing a guy who does not necessarily express pace but just able to through crafty clever bowling able to really outfox the batsman I guess you don't really like seeing that do you as a a batsman look no but I I, I do admire Murtagh's talents uh, just wobbling it around and we saw in that Lord's test just how effective swing bowling like that can be bowling it you know, just over 120 kilometers an hour, and even that might be generous. But yeah, players who are so so comfortable facing, you know, 145 plus with the ball not moving in the air, all of a sudden finding it very very difficult to to face uh, someone like Tim Murta. It's like what Muhammad Abbas does, but unfortunately for Muhammad Abbas here in Australia, he wasn't able to to find any of that swing that that's brought him success. But yeah, look. For, for Tim, he'll continue to dominate at, at county level. It's just a shame that we won't see it for the Irish, or at least in Irish colours. It just is bizarre, isn't it, when you think about it? There's a, a dual national with a, a British passport. I, I, let's assume for a moment, I'm not sure whether his heritage is in Northern Ireland or Republic of Ireland, but let's assume he's got an Irish passport and an Irish um, ancestry line there. Play Born in England, plays in England, a professional cricketer, but if he chooses to play cricket for a particular nation who, by agreement, the majority of that, that, that 
uh, area covered by that is part of the same country. Um, he is deemed completely different and cannot be signed the same way. So <laughs> mine's the layman version of what you said, Nick, but just uh, it's just amazing that there can be restrictions like that in place to make it harder for people to, to, to play cricket. Yeah, and just to finish up on all of this, I mean, if this could be another example of the downsides of the current ECB situation, and if there was to be some sort of investigation to, to look into situations like this, it, it might help. But we see this all the time, and it, and it continues to be an issue that doesn't really get looked at. And the other issue that we have, and this is just as a final point, if anyone was to jump on and look to make a case to push against the ECB, they they generally just can't afford it because, yeah, from an associate perspective, there isn't exactly a lot of money to go around in the first place and certainly not enough money to mount any legal challenges against someone like the ECB with all all the weight behind them. Well, I guess we're going to see it all come out once the the ACP agreement, which is the the binding agreement between the African, Caribbean, Pacific region countries and the EU that underpins the Colpac rulings. So once that changes or whether Great Britain signs on to a a revised contract, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, there's going to be a lot of players uh, very interested in the geopolitical sphere when that agreement um, expires next year, because uh, if that doesn't exist anymore, then the whole notion of Colpac doesn't. And then I wonder if so, whether that means that uh, if England does drop out of the EU, whether that might change the way that they approach at least uh, Irish cricketers, because they won't be able to be picking so much talent from a from around Europe or uh, or the African, Caribbean, and Pacific regions. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Tim. I guess the the ECB uh, seem like the kind of organisation that aren't going to take a backward step. You know, they don't want to admit they're wrong, perhaps. I mean, again, I'm not a lawyer, but my reading of of UK work law is that this probably wouldn't stand up to a challenge. Maybe if they do drop out of the EU, or if slash when, uh, yeah, who knows what's going to happen with that, Um, then that'll, um, I guess, affect things slightly sooner. But the, the agreement between the UK and the African and Caribbean countries, is that, um, do you know, between the UK and those countries... Or is it uh, the underlying framework, an EU law that allows it to, to happen? No, the, the Contenu Agreement is a treaty between the EU and the ACP region, uh, the group, that group of states. So that was signed in Benin in June 2000. So that's what underlines that. So it's if that agreement was running for a number of years, then um, that would be the question as to what would happen to Colpac and whatnot. But the fact is that the, the agreement is set to expire June 2020 is when. That, so for everyone that talks about Colpac and uh, what was the name of the other the other player that, that uh, was it? A- yeah, the boss, but the boss. Rule, yeah. Okay, and uh, yeah, this is the the treaty and the the which became tested uh, in law and the basis of all these contracts. So, without getting too uh, nerdy and political, um, I don't know where they are at in looking at this treaty and whether that means that will continue. But that will well, either way, it's going to have an impact on on British cricket because it will mean they need to reconsider how they sign their players. If it's continued, I guess that will will see the least change, but. <laughs> 
that would be only if if Britain didn't come out of the EU, because then would Britain become a signatory to this agreement potentially to allow the similar passage between the ACP countries into Britain, or would, or would Britain sit out of it completely? So look, there are so many different options here of what could happen, um, but that is why we're seeing so many Colpac players players being signed now. I'm sure the likes of Hashim Amlar, etc., um, to try and lock it in because nobody really knows what's going to happen after June. Plenty of political situations to keep an eye out for that will have consequences related to professional sport. Uh, some news to round out the show today. The Central American Championships will now be an annual tournament. Uh, Panama is to host the men's 2020 tournament, while the women's 2020 location is yet to be confirmed. Costa Rica to host in 2021. Malaysia's Kinrara Oval is set to host Pakistan and England's women for three ODIs and three T20Is. That series starts on the 9th of December and ends on the 20th. Look out for that. The USA and Canada both missed out on the finals in the Caribbean Super 50 competition with both winning just twice each. Canada finishing fourth in Group A and USA last in Group B. We'll talk with Peter Delapena on that uh, hopefully sometime next week, so look out for that. But for now, that's all that we have time for this week on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. To keep up with news and events from Cricket's New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket on your social media platforms and make sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you are listening to the podcast. For now, from myself, Daniel Beswick, and the boys, Tim Cutler and Nick Skinner, it's a very good day to you wherever you are around the cricketing world.